0: said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international
1: speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Um, before we open the Word of God this morning, I just invite you just to bow your heads quickly for just a short prayer. The Father in heaven, has We study your word and as we look at this topic, Lord, I just ask and pray that you be with my words. Father, may this all be about you, because it is all about you anyways. Father, we ask for your spirit and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this is the fourth sermon in our series of sermons on the pillars of our faith. We've looked at scripture, we've looked at salvation, we've looked at sanctuary, and now we're looking at Sabbath and there's so much that I could share on Sabbath and I was tempted to, to look at various different angles, not tempted in a bad way, I was you know, just thinking where am I going to go because there's so many, so many possibilities looking at this topic and I didn't want to just focus on so many of those possibilities that we kind of don't go deep in any of them, if you know what I mean. I wanted to focus on one particular angle, and I really want to focus on that and go deep on that particular thought. And my angle today regarding the Sabbath is about how God comes close. And it's not necessarily just, you know, bound up in the Sabbath per se. It's how God comes close. It's intrinsic to his nature. God comes near to us and I'll give you an example of that. The Lord's Prayer, what's the first line in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In that prayer you, you see this weird dichotomy. You see the Father which art in heaven. There's a weird dichotomy in that first line of the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, because you get two different concepts, and, they're, and they're, not, they're not, they are at two kind of extremes, but they're not disconnected from each other, and what I mean by that is this, we see a God who is near and a God who is far in the first line of the Lord's Prayer. You following what I'm saying here? Our Father, near, but where is he? He's in heaven. So we see a father who exists in heaven, but he chooses to be our father in the sense that he chooses to come close. And this is this beautiful concept in scripture, and we see it. We see it in the Lord's prayer, our father which art in heaven, that God desires us to call him father. One of the most beautiful truths in all of scripture is that the God of all the universe wants us to call him daddy. One of the two first words the child will probably learn Is either mummy or daddy. And abba is the word in the Aramaic. And it's a word of endearment. And God says, I want you to call me father. And I don't know about you, but I have a really great experience with my dad. But you may not have a good experience with your dad. But the Bible doesn't define father with earthly fatherhood. The Bible defines fatherhood by the illustration of the prodigal son. That's what a true father looks like. So if you have a bad experience with your father, even if you have a good experience with your father, focus on the prodigal father that runs out to his son who left and expended all of his goods, who wastes all of his life in prodigal uh, living and comes back home and the father receives him. That's what the father looks like. We can go to him. Yes, he is far, but he chooses to come near. And we're going to look at this today from the perspective of the Sabbath. Now, when I was in school, I had a principal, and his name was Danny Carrasco. Does anybody, has anybody ever met Danny Carrasco? Lovely man. And Danny Carrasco was the principal. You know, he'd wear the suit, he'd wear the tie, he'd have, you know, the principal's office, you know, and, you know, as a, as a kid, you'd never go anywhere near the principal's office because, you know, if you had to go there, then you were genuinely in trouble. But. He was a real friend. And I remember that most lunches, you know, we're out, we're playing, you know, football, we're playing cricket, or we're playing volleyball, and guess who comes running out onto the field? It's like, you know, he's, cha- he's changed his clothes, he's got shorts, he's got a t shirt on, and he's just running out to play with us. He comes close to us. He doesn't allow his position to keep him in an office and to keep himself removed from us. He comes near. And he would play with us, and he'd joke around, there'd be friendly bands, oh, you could have caught that one, Ashley, and all this kind of stuff, and and we loved it. In fact, there were kids from other schools that joined our school, and I remember a conversation that we're having over lunch, and they're like, man, we have never seen a principal do this before. I remember that I turned up late to school once, and as I was walking into school, I was about half an hour or so late, I didn't have a late slip, and I was walking into class, and guess who catches me? The principal, and I was expecting him to get in trouble, but he said, "Why are you late, Ashley?" I'm like, "Oh, traffic." Now this is Lismore we're talking about. Um, he's like, and then he laughs. He's like, "I come from Sydney. Just go to class, you know." And he was just laughing with me. But he made me afraid first, so then he could joke with me. You know, he organised a day where you know. My dad, me, and him could go up to Brisbane to watch, watch the football. Like, this is my principle. He didn't allow his position to keep himself distant from us. And when I think about that, I think, of, I think of God. He doesn't allow his position to keep himself disconnected from us. Yes, he art in heaven, but he's also the father who chooses to come near. And I want to introduce this thought to you when it comes to the Sabbath because we're going to look at this from the angle of Sabbath today. But it's broader than just the Sabbath. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open with me to Genesis chapter 1. And when you're there, let me know because that's when we'll start. Genesis chapter 1. It's not a hard book to find, it's the first one in the Bible, the first page of the Bible, in fact or not necessarily the first page, but the first inspired page. Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to have a look at this common theme that we see throughout the book of Genesis. This is the count of God creating the world. And what you will find at each and every day where God creates something, you will see these three words, and it's up on the screen. The words are, then God said. And in fact, you'll see these words, then God said, Eight times in the first chapter. If you were to take those three words, then God said, in that succession there, and if you were to search for them all throughout the Old Testament in that arrangement, do you know how many times you would find the words, then God said? Sixteen times. Eight of those 16 times is in the first chapter. In other words, what is God trying to emphasize here? That he's speaking, and when he speaks, something happens. Let's just recount what happens here. In verse 3, then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. That was the first day of the week. God speaks, and there's light. The second day, we see in verse 6, then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. God speaks, and what happens? He separates. He separates the land and the waters. We come to the third day. It says, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together and into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. He separates the heavens from the earth on the third day with the words, then God said. The fourth day of the week, in verse 14, then God said, let there be light in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. God speaks. We see the words, then God said, and he fills the spaces that he has made. He fills the heavens with the things above. We come to the fifth day. It says, Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the faith of the firmament of the heavens. On the fifth day, God fills the spaces that he has made, but we see those words yet again, Then God says. On the sixth day, Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, and according to its kind, and it was so. And then we come to the pinnacle of God's creation, which is mankind, made in the image of God, and we see the same words again. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What picture are you getting here? God is speaking, and when God speaks, things that did not appear, suddenly appear. When God speaks, it happens. And that's what it's trying to communicate here in this chapter of the Bible. When God speaks, Not even the inanimate becomes animate. Things that didn't even exist now suddenly exist. And it often concludes with these words, it was so, or some kind of equivalent. But the emphasis here is that God is creating things. He's standing apart from his creation and he's speaking into the space of his creation and things which did not exist now suddenly exist. Now this may seem quite basic and rudimentary, but there's a real powerful point here that I want you to see. From this picture that we have here about how God creates, what kind of picture does it portray regarding God? What was that? Powerful. He's omnipotent. He just has to speak the word and it is. Now, I don't know anybody else who can speak and they don't even have to wait. It's instantaneous. And he doesn't even need to say it twice, he just speaks and all of a sudden it's there. He's powerful. This first chapter is communicating the power of God and the power of God in such an overwhelming way and this is the introduction to who God is in scripture. This is the first chapter, that he is a powerful God, that he is an almighty God. Do we get the image that he's more of a general giving orders or a sculptor who's sculpting with his hands in this chapter? It's a general. But the question I want to give to you as we kind of transition this is, what do we see in the next chapter of Genesis? We see a different kind of angle of who God is. I mean, God is so infinite that we can't possibly contain him in a single chapter of Scripture. There is so much to him. That's why the, the, the Bible is so vast, so broad, because there's so much concerning God, and we're really only scratching the surface of who he truly is. In Genesis chapter 2, what you see is this. This is quite amazing. We see a real transition in the creation account. And you see God doing different things in the second chapter. You see in Genesis 2 and verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed Adam, or man, from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Is that a little bit different to what we've just seen in Genesis chapter 1? We see in Genesis chapter one a God who is outside of that space speaking into that space. He's removed from that space but he speaks into it. He's the God which art in heaven. He's the holy almighty God. But in chapter two we see a God who steps into that space. And not just steps into that space but what does he do with Adam? He gets down and he forms him from the dust of the ground. In other words his hands get dirty and he touches And not only forming him from the dust of the ground, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And he becomes a living being. The very next verse we get another picture of this God who steps into this space and takes interest in his creation. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man who he had formed. So not only does he form man, he then provides a place for that man. And he does both of these things with his hands. Now, I have a veggie garden in my backyard. And when I go and I till the soil and I mulch it and I plant, guess what happens to my hands? I get dirty. When you play with dirt, you get dirty. And here we see God using his hands. He's touching, he's forming, he's planting. You know, he's creating Adam. His hands are getting do- dirty, which is symbolic of God, how he is the almighty, omnipotent God who chooses to come near to his creation. And we see this in chapter two, but it's not just in the things that he does, church, it's in who he is, in the name that's used concerning him in chapter two. In chapter one, God goes by this name, and the name is Elohim. It's this almighty, powerful God. But when you come to chapter two, for the first time in all of scripture, not the last time, but the first time, we see God introduced with a different name. It's the name Yahweh. And Yahweh is the God who comes close. He's the personal, intimate God. He's the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, promise-making God. And he comes close, and he puts his divine fingerprints on Adam. You are in the image of God, and you are not only in the image of God, but you are put in a particular place for a particular purpose. I have destined you, Adam, for greatness because I have come near to you. It's not enough for me to be far from you to kind of set the wheel in motion as the divine clockmaker, but I come close to my creation because my creation is important to me because I love them. And we see this in Genesis chapter two. This God who chooses to come close, not only is he the God which art in heaven, He is the God who calls himself Father. But what is the pivot upon which all of this hinges? What is the link between the transcendent God, I guess you could say, in Genesis chapter one? The God who's sitting on his throne and who's speaking from afar and things are existing. And the God who gets into the dirt and puts his hands on Adam and he forms him from the dust of the ground. What is the link between these two? What are we studying today? It's Sabbath. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, which is the introduction from the God who is far to the God who is near, we see this. And when I say that God is far, I'm not saying that God doesn't care. And when I say that God is powerful, I'm not saying that God... Because he is powerful, he's not loving. In fact, God's power is his love, and God's love is his power. I think a real problem that sometimes people get into when they try to divide the personality or the characteristics of God and they kind of pitch them against each other, and I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. When Jesus demonstrated his love on earth, he was also demonstrating his power. Think about it for a moment. When Jesus demonstrated his love to the blind and he gave those that could not see sight, he was demonstrating his love, but he was also demonstrating his power because he had the power to give sight to the blind. When Jesus drove the religious leaders out of the temple... He was demonstrating his power that nobody could question the authority that he had, but he was also demonstrating his love in the sense that the children came to him. When God demonstrates his power, he demonstrates his love, and we shouldn't separate the two from they are one of the same. I'm the Lord and I change not. But in chapter 1, we see a God that is God. He's so far up that ladder that he doesn't even exist on the ladder, and we could never climb to the top of the ladder. God is so far beyond. He's outside of time. He's beyond us but he chooses to step into space and to come near to us. And we see this in chapter two. And the Sabbath is the fulcrum upon which this all hinges. And what does it say? It says, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. Now there's four points I want to get to today. Now I've just finished my introduction. Now don't worry, my introduction is half my sermon, Um, but I've made this point. I want to kind of dig into this a little bit as as we kind of cross over the 50% way. So don't get too worried. The Sabbath is all about the nearness of God. It's all about the nearness of God. So there's four things from the Sabbath that demonstrate to us this concept of the nearness of God. And the first one is rest. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Did God rest on the Sabbath because he was tired? I mean, the Bible says, have you not known, have you not heard the creator of all the earth, you know, who, who is the everlasting God? Is he weary? The Bible says no. But why does God rest? He rests to spend time with his creation. And we see that in the chapter. He comes down to their level because there's no way they could ever get up to his. He spends time with them. And he initiates that whole process of community and communion. They knew of him because they had seen what he had done. But did they know him? They had probably observed a lot about him, but they didn't really know him. And God comes to them. I'll give you an example. Parenting. It's easy to give your kids things to do. It's easy to spend money to give them things to do. That if you can't invest time in your children, some people just throw money at their children. They may give them gadgets, they may give them things, they may give them um, extracurricular tasks to do all these kind of things. Just throwing money at their children to demonstrate that they care for their children. When all that child really wants is what? Fine. I just want mum. I just want dad. I don't want their things. I just want them. I mean, God had provided this amazing place for them, yeah. This amazing garden. Everything was perfect. There were no insecurities. There was no feelings of discontentedness. But still, God says that's not enough. I'm not just going to provide them a place. I'm going to give them myself. And God chooses to rest and he comes near to them. And he spends this period of time with them. I'll give you another example. What does it suggest to you or what does it mean to you when somebody who is very important to you, who at the same time is very busy, chooses to clear their schedule and spend time with you? What does that communicate to you? It communicates value, doesn't it? It communicates that you're important, that you're worth it. What does it mean for you that the God of the universe, who is infinitely busy, clears his schedule for a 24-hour period of time to spend time with them, that they are precious and they are valuable, and that he loves them? We see this in the whole concept of God resting on the Sabbath. We see that the Sabbath is all about the nearness of God because the Sabbath is about God giving us himself. He doesn't just give them a place, he gives them himself. He gives them direct access to himself. The second key thing that we see regarding the Sabbath is that he finishes. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1 it says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. Is there anything more that Adam and Eve could have done to what God had already done? it was a completed work they arrived at the end of the week there was nothing more to be made than hadn't already been made i mean adam hadn't even made the i mean named the animals yet there was nothing that they could have done that would deserved anything that god had given it was all finished and this is a finished work and sabbath is a celebration of what god has done what god has finished but not only in the sense of creation also in the sense of salvation Just as there is nothing that we can do that can add to our creation, there is nothing that we can do that can add to our salvation. We accept what God has done and God finishes the work that he starts. All that we have to do is say yes and to step into it. I'll give you an example. In Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, the Bible says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. So in other words, he begins and he finishes what he starts. He is the author, and he is the finisher of the faith that he has given to us. He finishes what he begins. And the Sabbath in creation is a reminder, it's a celebration of what God has created in our lives, but it's also a celebration and reminder of the fact that he has saved us. I'll give you a scripture. In John chapter 19 and verse 30, at the end of Jesus' life, When he receives the sour wine, he says, it is finished. And he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. So you think about it. God creates the world in six days and then he says that it is finished and then he rests. Jesus saves the world. He says that it is finished. He breathes his last. He's taken down off the cross. He's put into the tomb and he rests in the tomb on Sabbath. In both of these two expressions, we see that God finishes from a completed work, a finished work. What God starts, He finishes. The Sabbath is all about the nearness of God because the Sabbath is a reminder of a finished work. But not only is it a reminder of rest, and not only is it a reminder of finished work, it's also a reminder that God gives and that God gives good gifts. What is it called when you receive something that you don't deserve? Grace. And grace is undeserved, which means you didn't do anything to deserve it, it was just given to you undeserved. Did Adam and Eve do anything in the Garden of Eden to deserve the gift of Sabbath? They came at the end of the week. Everything was already done for them. The first gift of grace that we find in Scripture is the gift of Sabbath, the gift of time that God gives to them, and He freely gives it to them. You know, you think about the two institutions that God gave to Adam and Eve, or gave to humanity in the Garden of Eden. It's marriage and Sabbath. And guess which two institutions are under attack today? Sabbath and marriage. Sabbath in the sense that the Sabbath is no longer relevant. And marriage in the sense that there are new definitions concerning marriage. Satan is, under, is attacking those things that God has given to humanity. The first gift of grace we find was given to Adam and Eve in the garden, and it was the gift of time, it was the gift of Sabbath, which demonstrates the nearness of God, the God which art in heaven chooses to come close to his children. But it wasn't just, it wasn't just this localised moment that we see in Genesis, where he comes close. You think enshrined in the Ten Commandments. Where God actually says that this Sabbath, and it talks about your your male servant, your, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey. And then it says the what? The stranger that is within your gates. The NIV says the foreigner who is within your gates. So, in other words, the Sabbath wasn't just for the Jewish people, but the Sabbath was actually a gift for humanity. And that makes sense when you think about it, because the Sabbath was given to Adam and Eve at the very infancy of the human race. The the parents of the human race received this gift. They weren't Jewish. And enshrined in the Ten Commandments, we see the blessing or the gift of Sabbath was extended to the families of earth, the stranger or the foreigner who is within your gates. You fast forward to the story of Jesus when Jesus is preaching and he says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The word man is anthropos, it's humanity, it's mankind. Jesus is taking the whole entire family of earth and saying the Sabbath is made for mankind. And then you come to Isaiah chapter 66 where it talks about the creation, the the new creation of the heavens and the earth and God says that from one new moon to another new moon and from one Sabbath to another Sabbath all flesh shall gather before him to worship. So in the world made new, we see this this provision of this gift of God, this favor of God where he invites us and he draws us into his presence. And it all centers in this concept of Sabbath because it's all about worship and God coming near. The Sabbath is all about the nearness of God because the Sabbath is all about grace. It couldn't possibly be about works because how could a day where you don't do anything be about working? It's all about rest. Because you rest in a finished work, yeah? Yeah. You rest in what God has completed. You rest in what God has done. And you trust in his provisions and you trust in his mercy. And my favorite point about how the Sabbath demonstrates the nearness of God is that he blesses the day. When God blesses the day, what does he do? Or when God blesses something, what does he do? He sets it apart. He makes it holy. He dedicates it to a particular special use. And he does this for a 24-hour period of time. He fills it with his presence, which is an amazing thought when you consider time. Because every single second of every single minute, of every single hour, of every single day, just goes by. And I don't know about you, but I looked into the mirror the other day and I saw a white hair. It might have been a gray hair. I couldn't tell the difference. And you, some of you are laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Time just passes by, does it not? And you think, where is that gone? The thing is, you can you can fold your arms and you can cross your legs and you say, "No, I'm going to stop time," but you can't. Time just comes. It just has this it just has this way of just carrying on. And you know what the beautiful thing about Sabbath is? It's always coming to you because time is always elapsing. And this blessed 24-hour period of time that God has set aside and filled with his presence is always coming towards us. It's this beautiful kind of concept of how God is always coming near, even in the the concept of time. God, who is outside of time, he steps into time and he fills this 24-hour period of time with his presence. And he's always coming to us because God is always coming near because he loves us. In fact, the days of the week that we currently have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We borrowed that off the Romans. And the Romans had based that off the the pantheon of of Roman, Greek, whoever other gods that they absorbed into their their religious worship. And so Sundays after the sun and Mondays after the moon, etc., etc., etc. But the thing about the pantheon of ancient gods is that these gods are very vindictive. These gods are very capricious. These gods are very unreliable. These gods are very distant and disconnected, and disinterested in humanity. But for the ancient Hebrew, do you know what? They didn't call the days of the week Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Do you know what they called their days around? Sabbath. The first day of the week it was Sunday. They called it the first day of the week, or the first day from Sabbath. The second day of the week, Monday, is the second the second day from Sabbath, the third day, etc. 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 all the way till you get to Friday, which is called the preparation day for the Sabbath. And then the Sabbath comes and the Sabbath is there. It's like in their minds they're keeping before them each and every day of the week this concept that God has come close and that God is coming close, not because God isn't close throughout the week. but because God is especially coming close in this time. And I remember Dave Pendon when you know, he was an elder of the church here and he'd he do the welcome and you'd always say, Dave, oh, isn't the Sabbath great? It's getting back to basics and it's refocusing. And that's exactly what the Sabbath is. Because we can become so busy and so preoccupied with all our other things that we come back to the Sabbath and we recalibrate Because we remember what we were created for and what we were saved from. And the Sabbath is a reminder of those two things. It's a reminder that God who sits on the throne of the universe chose to step off his throne and step into our space and to come close to us. And the Sabbath is a reminder of that each and every week, that God as every single second of every single minute of every single day passes, we're getting closer and closer to the Sabbath, which is this big picture of the whole plan of salvation. We see salvation in Sabbath in the sense that the same God who initiates and the same God that comes when he sends his son to die on the cross is the same God that sends a Sabbath each and every week to us as a reminder of a finished work, both with our creation and our salvation. This is a beautiful teaching that God has given us, church. This is a beautiful teaching in Scripture. The Sabbath is all about the nearness of God because the Sabbath is all about God pursuing us. And what do we bring to God on the Sabbath? ourselves. Not what I have done, or not what I would do, or not look how great I am, God, what we bring ourselves just as we are, and God takes us as we are, and he sanctifies us just as he sanctified the day. We enter into his presence, and the beautiful thing about this whole concept of time and the nearness of God is that we can be on the other side of the world, and guess what comes to us every single week? We can be in the most loathsome prison, and guess what will come to us every single week? And it's a reminder that this is what God does every single day of the week. He comes to us, He comes down to our level, He reaches out to us. Yes, He art in heaven, but at the same time, He is our Father. Church, this is our message. This is our message. And when I say it's our message, it's not just our message in the sense that we should keep the Sabbath, which we should. But our message is to love the Lord of the Sabbath. And I could have come here today and I could have given you theological reasons as to why the Sabbath is important and why the Sabbath should be kept, etc., etc., etc. But you can put in your arsenal, put up your sleeve, you know, at the, at the, the most important time you can just project it on, you know, somebody who, who needs to hear it. But you've probably heard the reasons all before. What we need to understand is the Lord of the Sabbath. And at the heart of Sabbath is the heart of God because it's a God that chooses to come near when he never had to. He's the Father. And he's not just the best Father that you could ever be. He's the best Father that has ever been. Because he doesn't have to, but he chooses to. He chooses to come, he chooses to draw, he chooses to invite. He could have just set this whole thing in motion. He could have spoken the world into existence and sat on his throne and said, "That's great. Look how amazing things are." But it's not within his nature to just sit there and watch on. He has to come close. That's who he is, and he gets his hands dirty. He condescends. He comes down. He reaches out because love initiates. He desires intimacy. He desires connection because he loves. And the amazing thing is the most powerful being in all the universe is the being who is nearest. And he's the being who wants to be closest. And he says, I'm giving myself direct. I'm giving you direct access to myself. So the question I want to ask you this morning as we close, God has come. He comes every week. He comes every moment of the week but especially today he comes. And we've come here today. And we may have come here for different reasons. We may have come here today to enjoy a message. We may have come here today to pick holes in the message of the messenger. We may have come here today because our wives made us, because our husbands made us, because our parents made us. We may have come here today because God has called us. And what I love, Natasha, about your testimony is the whole fact you know, that you're talking and you, you realize the personal aspect of Sabbath. It's about relationship. And at the heart of the law of God is this principle of love. I don't say emotion. Yes, there are emotions involved, but at its core, love is a principle. It's love to God and love to man. And the Sabbath is all about that. We devote our hearts to God afresh. We We refocus. We recalibrate. And the Sabbath we know is a blessing. It's a blessing that blesses. And just as the Sabbath is a blessing to us, we should use the Sabbath as a blessing for others. Because often what we do on the Sabbath is we make it all about me. This is my rest day. I'm going to do what I want. What did Jesus do on Sabbath, church? You'll see two things that he did. He did good. He blessed because that's what the Sabbath's all about. He was a blessing. He ministered to those who needed ministering to. He healed those who needed healing. And the second thing that you see Jesus doing in Luke chapter four and verse 16, and you see it throughout the book of Acts, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. You might think, we're at the synagogue today. But you want to know what he did at the synagogue? He didn't just sit, he did. He got involved, he ministered, he used his talents, he got involved. And yes, they tried to um, drive him out of the synagogue. But we see this whole idea that the Sabbath is not about me. It's about God. It's about others. It takes myself out of the centre and it places God there. God comes close to church. He initiates. He does that in the plan of salvation. We also see it in Sabbath. The God which art in heaven chooses to come close to his children because he loves them, because he can do no other, because that's who he is. And every single week it's a reminder of that. It's a reminder that he created us when he never, he never had to, and he saved us when he never needed to. The Sabbath is a reminder that everything that we are is dependent entirely upon him. My question for you today is this. Will you be here today, not just sitting here in person, but in heart in the sense that you're in the spirit of the Lord on the Lord's day, where he lives in you, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, that you experience the fullness of his rest and you have the assurance of his love, And that you live a life that is not just all about being blessed. But a life that is all about being a blessing. Because Jesus says it is much more blessed to give than to receive. Father in heaven, we just want to come to you now. and We want to recognize that you are Lord of all. That you are high and lifted up. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. But Father, we also want to recognize here today that you stepped down. That you stepped down to make us when you never needed to. That your son condescended to go to the very bottom of the bottom to save us when you never had to. You are a God which art in heaven who chooses to come near. And each and every week, the Sabbath is a reminder of that. Through the very principle of time, even. You step into space, you step into our time to save us. Father in heaven, we just ask and pray that we may experience the rest that only Jesus can provide on the day that he's provided it. But at the same time, Lord, that we may recognize that whilst we are blessed on this day, we should also in turn live lives of blessings as well. That we may receive to give, receive to give. Father, may you be with your congregation. May you continue to bless us, speak to us, lead us, guide us and use us for your service. Because that's what your son did on his Sabbath day. It's the prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: This message was made available by the Mwollombar Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page. Mwollombar Seventh-day Adventist Church.
2: Matt and Josie Minigas sang Temple of Time. Coming up next, Carly Fletcher will sing It's Sabbath Now.
0: Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland.
2: The story I have for you today is entitled Gehazi, A Privilege Lost, and this is based on 2 Kings 4 and 5. My fingers and toes are but stubs now. I sense that the day of my death is not far away. Perhaps the part of my punishment I feel the most is seeing my children and their children suffer as I have since that fateful day many years ago when Naaman of Syria came to seek a cure for his leprosy from my master Elisha the prophet. Naaman was cured but his leprosy was given to me on that dreadful day when I coveted Naaman's gifts and lied to the prophet. I was raised in a small town in the tribal territory of Ephraim. My father was a Levite and my parents had high hopes that I would follow in his steps, filling the same role at the temple in Jerusalem where my father had been a gatekeeper all his adult life. My parents had discussed with me that as an apprenticeship for my Levitical destiny, it would be a wonderful thing for me if the prophet Elisha would accept me as his servant. This would involve doing many of the mundane duties around his home, going on assignments for him, caring for his donkeys and many other duties. It would also involve cooperating with Elisha in his role as God's prophet. Work such as this would be an honour for any young man, giving me an insight into Elisha's life and prophetic ministry. It would prepare me for the role God had purposed for all the adult males of the tribe of Levi. As Elisha agreed to take me as his servant, I commenced my service for him with a keen sense of anticipation. I had heard from my parents that the prophet's role was very different from the lives of other men in Israel and Judah. On the one hand, the Lord might charge him to fulfill a particular commission for his people. On the other hand, people might come to him seeking God's will in their lives. God also performed miracles for his people. Through the prophets, it was this aspect of Elisha's work that I was involved in when I had been with him for only a short time. The kind woman and her husband in the town of Shunem frequently invited Elisha to eat with them as he passed by their home. One day the woman suggested to her husband that it would be a good thing to build a room for the prophet on the roof of their house so that he could stay there overnight or to rest for shorter periods. On one visit... Elisha asked me to inquire of the Shunammite woman if there was something he could do for her to show her he appreciated her kindness. "'Perhaps I could speak to the king for you,' he said, or even to the commander of the army. When I spoke to her, she said that she was quite happy to stay where she was as many of her relatives and friends lived nearby. Elisha then asked me if I had a suggestion. The only thing I could think of was that this couple had no children and her husband was now an old man. Tell her to come to my room, Elisha said. When she came to the doorway, Elisha gave her the surprising news that she would have a baby boy this time next year. Torn between her desire for a son and the apparent impossibility that this could happen, the woman told my master not to mock her True to Elisha's word, she gave birth to a son at the exact time he had foretold. When the boy was still a toddler, he ran out into the field one day where his father's reapers were gathering in the new season's grain. The day was hot, too hot for the child. He succumbed from the heat and no matter what his mother did, he died at noon that day. Even though she was distraught, The mother remained calm and asked her husband if he could spare one of the young men to saddle two donkeys and go with her to visit the prophet. Though he was mystified why she would want to go on such a mission, he agreed. She was soon on her way. While she was still some distance away from Elisha's home, Elisha saw her and he asked me to run to meet her to see what the problem was. Of course, I did not delay, but the woman wanted to speak to Elisha, so she waved me away and continued on her way until she came face to face with Elisha. Immediately she collapsed at the prophet's feet. I thought this was an annoyance to the prophet and was about to push her away when Elisha stopped me, saying that she was obviously in great grief. This was confirmed, for the woman referred to her son and that she had said to Elisha, not to deceive her when he had said she would have a son. Elisha realised the boy must have died, so he charged me to take his staff and go as quickly as I could to place the staff gently on the boy's face. Unfortunately, the boy did not respond, so I ran back to where Elisha and the woman were on their way to her house and told him that there had been no change in the boy's condition. Soon we were at the Shunammite woman's house where Elisha followed a ritual that only a prophet would know. To the utter joy of the mother, the boy was brought back to life again and was in perfect health. Elisha had commanded me to tell the mother she had her boy back again as she was not present when the prophet was involved in raising the boy from death to life. It was experiences like this that were the high points of my time of service for the prophet. However, these highlights in my life were not to last. For on that fateful day, when Naaman and his entourage came to Elisha, I succumbed to the promptings of my lower nature and brought upon myself a fate worse than death. When Naaman was healed of his leprosy in God's own wonderful way, The desire to have some of the riches Naaman had brought with him as gifts for the prophet overpowered me, I concocted a story that I knew was an outright lie and was given two sets of clothes and two talents of silver. When I arrived back at the prophet's house, I was confronted by my master to whom God revealed that I had coveted the gifts and then lied to cover up my wickedness. It was then that I heard those dreadful words that were to change my life forever. Naaman's leprosy shall be upon you and on your descendants down through all your generations. My parents and my hopes and visions for a future in God's service were shattered in a second and I went away from Elisha's service as though I had been a leper all my life. Years later, I saw the Shunammite woman again. She and her family had escaped from a famine in Israel and had lived in Philistia for seven years. When they returned to Shunem, she found another family had taken over their property. Seeing this as a violation of their inheritance rights, the woman appealed to the king, who sought verification of her story from me. The king knew that I had been Elisha's servant some years before and realized I could not alter a falsehood on this occasion. I gladly verified that the land in question was indeed the property of the Shunammite woman and her husband. It was little enough that I could do, but nothing was to reverse the sentence of the living death that was rightly placed upon me. It had been a privilege to serve the Lord's prophet all those years ago, a privilege, but a privilege lost.
0: Been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you.
3: It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.